0: The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by James Howard Kunstler, prolific author of 20 plus books, including The Long Emergency, World Made by Hand, and most recently, Living in the Long Emergency global crisis, the failure of the futurists, and the early adapters who are showing us the way forward, a copy of which I recently picked up and went through and highly recommend. He has an excellent podcast called the Kunstlercast, and you can find his writing at kunstler.com. For decades, he's been providing a cutting-edge cultural, political, and economic commentary, and so we'll, we'll be getting his thoughts on what in the world is going on in 2020, because it definitely seems like we've entered something akin to the Bermuda Triangle, or the Twilight Zone, where our compass is no longer functioning and the wheels have fallen off our transport. Thank you, Mr. Kunstler, for joining us for the first time.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Now, I've followed your work on and off for years and find that you've been hitting the mark with your forecasts of Where we've been heading, much like uh, another similar uh, social critic I've had the pleasure of recording a few podcasts with and meeting down here in Mexico, that being the cultural historian Morris Berman, who's been writing on the decline of American empire for years. In 2005, you wrote The Long Emergency, foreseeing the collapse of industrial economy and the end of just about everything, as you put it. Well... <laughs> <laughs> here we are now, and it seems we're at the cusp of what you wrote about years ago, about to plunge into the deindustrialized Great Reset of 2021. Now, aside from your twice-weekly blog posts, your monthly podcast, and books, you write an annual forecast. In December of 2019, you pretty much laid out all of what ails America, and you really nailed it. You know, you detailed the implosion of the Jacobin Dems, uh, the banking collapse, the shale oil sham. I urge listeners to go back and read that piece. And if you don't mind, I just read a. I'd like to read a, a paragraph uh, before uh, continuing. "Quote: The madness is distri- distributed over many realms of American life, with the common denominator of a thinking class fallen into disordered thinking." The disorder is led by the information media and higher education with their crypto-gnostic agendas for transforming human nature to heal the world. It includes a grab bag of delusions and deliberate mind fucks, ranging from the morbid obsession with Russian interference, the crusade against free speech, the worship of sexual perversity, campaigns against whiteness and uh, maleness, incursions of wokeness. The cynical machinations of economists, bankers and politicians and manipulating financial appearances and so on. And, you know, you mentioned the New York Times that turned from its mission of strictly pursuing news and being enlisted as the public relations service for rogue government agencies seeking to overthrow a president under false pretenses. And, you know, this leads us to the question, as you say, what drove the American thinking class insane? So, uh, can you tell us a bit, you know, of what's going on in America right now? Others have, have talked about this. There's a fourth turning, Peter Turchin's Age of Discord, Morris Berman. You know, what's going on?
1: Well, uh, we can start by saying there's a lot going on, and a lot of it is mystifying, as you've just laid out. I think that it has a great deal to do with a kind of nervous apprehension that the old regime is coming to an end uh, and with it many of the comforts and conveniences of modern life. And it's all too terrible to bear, really. It also happens to be fairly complex and hard to understand. So the thinking class in particular, or, or people who might style themselves as those who traffic in ideas, uh, have, have gone particularly crazy because they, they simply can't grok what is uh, happening and at the heart of this is the business of the energy module of the economy and that of course uh, rests mostly on uh, petroleum oil and we're we've been in trouble with oil for the whole beginning of the century and the situation has become very confusing to Americans because of the way it has played out i when i wrote about it initially in the long emergency. Well, let me, let me back up a little bit. I was writing about the coming problems with oil way back in the nineties. Uh, when I wrote several books about the fiasco of suburban, uh, living and suburban property development and the whole paradigm of suburbia. And by the time I finished that book in the last, in the, in the later chapters, I, I, put in an argument that we, w- we would encounter problems with our oil supply. Now, around the same time in the middle of the, n- the 90s, a group of senior geologists started retiring out of the oil industry and started publishing their dark and secret thoughts in the obscure journals of the day. And it would have ended there because they were obscure publications. But the internet had come around in the in the interim, and their, uh, their papers escaped onto the internet and received very broad circulation. And they came to my attention, and I started preparing to write The Long Emergency based on that. And the idea at that time was labeled Peak Oil, and it was a fairly simple model based on the work of a of a 20th century geologist named uh, Hubbard. And the model was simply that production goes way up, reaches a peak, and then declines in a kind of symmetrical bell curve fashion. But what actually happened was uh, a much more chaotic playing out of the drama. So by about 2005, we were in big trouble with oil. We were using 20 million barrels a day and importing about 15 million. And that was putting us in a pretty precarious situation geopolitical position. I would argue that to some extent, the, uh, uh, the falling American production and the rising price of oil, which got as high as about hundred and fifty dollars a barrel by two thousand eight, I would argue that that provoked the great financial crisis of of two thousand eight and nine, uh, at least to a to a significant degree. And after that, we embarked on this shale oil miracle project. That was really a, a financial stunt. It was accomplished with, with uh, zero, near zero interest lending and policy from the Federal Reserve. And you had all these companies who borrowed enormous amounts of money uh, to ramp up these fracking operations. And um, they never made a dime doing it. You know, we have to understand the difference between the conventional oil uh, pre-fracking and the fracking oil. And it's it's not that hard to understand. The old oil, like a Texas oil well in the 1950s, you stick a pipe in the ground, the, the well cost about $400,000 in today's money, and it produces thousands of barrels a day for decades. The new oil, the frack oil, uh, costs between 6 and $12 million uh, per well, produces about 100 or so barrels a day for one year. And then production goes down to to by 60%. And after three years, it's over. So there's a very different kind of, uh, you know, business model for shale oil and geological model. There are some additional problems like shale oil is ultra light petroleum doesn't contain any kerosene or diesel. So that's problematical. So anyway, we did this, the shale companies uh, couldn't make any money doing it. And now, that they've demonstrated that they can't make money and pay back their loans. They can't get any new loans uh, or it's very difficult for them. And they're not going to be able to continue production at the rate that they did. Now, it was a magnificent stunt for what it was. We goosed up the production from from five million barrels a day uh, in 2008 to about 13 million barrels a day in 2019. But already, since 2019, production has fallen by more than two million barrels a day. And dozens of oil companies have gone bankrupt. And the likelihood is that 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 arc of uh, the story is gonna continue and accelerate. And that's where we're at with that. And and I think that behind all of the madness uh, in society today, especially as expressed by the thinking classes, is this apprehension that, that our industrial and technological society is in deep trouble. They, they can't bear thinking about it and uh, you know, arguing uh, about what we're going to do now and what measures, what kind of intelligent responses we might have to this. Um, I, I'd also add that we made a kind of excursion after the crash of 2008 and 2009, we made a kind of excursion into uh, collective wishful thinking. There was a great deal of that and a lot of it was centered on the notion that technological rescue remedies would get us through this problem you know we would save suburbia by electrifying the automobile fleet and things like that and you know we would ramp up an alt energy economy that would uh, allow us to run walt disney world walmart the interstate highway system the u.s military and suburbia by other means. So uh, we're still kind of in that wishful thinking mode, but we're shifting into uh, you know panic and distress at uh, several layers of American life. And it, it's looking pretty uh, dark for where we're going next.
0: Yeah, I would agree with your take on, on energy. I'm still not myself totally convinced on the peak oil aspect. I, I, I like to flirt with uh, Dimitri Mendeleev's uh, abiotic A- 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 oil
1: uh, oh my God! Theory.
0: Well, but I mean, I, I I still I see what you're saying, and uh, the shale oil, uh, I guess we can call snake oil. I think I I we could see that coming uh, from a mile away, and as well as the alt energy freak show, as you call it, uh, the the electric vehicles, as you detail in your book, they take a lot of rare earth minerals and a lot, uh and the use of fossil fuels to, to produce, and so that doesn't seem viable either. What do you make also of? Just a little bit of the geopolitical aspect, the U.S. Uh, attempts of uh, regime change in Venezuela recently, you know, is that kind of like a manifestation of what you've been talking about, the, the decline in the energy supply, as well as, you know, kind of like the proof of the diminishing imperial status, given how poorly the coup attempt went? I mean, they even had to roll out Elliot Abrams from the 1980s. So um, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I'm, I am i can't speak uh, that, that intelligently about the coup attempt itself and exactly how they tried to carry it out. I, I guess what I would say is this, is that um, it does seem to be a fact that uh, there's a lot of petroleum locked up in the uh, territory of Venezuela. But almost all of it is in the form of uh, tar sands. And uh, my own opinion is that the tar sands would be very difficult to extract, and probably not very profitable. You know, partly because so much of the uh, 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 terrain is uh, located in the jungle with all of its problems for workers, and uh, partly because the Canadians have already uh, demonstrated that shale oil is an economic loser. Notwithstanding all that, I think that there was a desire... Uh, to get control of Venezuela simply because they were known to have a great reserve of oil, and if by some new, newer miracle we could make that work, we might have, uh, you know, another source of oil to extend our way of life. And I, I don't think it was more complicated than that. You know, as as to the coup itself. Uh, You know, I can't really uh, speak about how it failed, what they tried to do, and you know, it is a very chaotic place, and and uh, you know, chaos by its nature is uncontrollable.
0: And I wanted to step back again to what you were mentioning previously. It just something that just really amazes me. You know uh, how you say in your book in the intro how you know everything for now seems to be functioning normally, but for those who can clearly see what you're seeing you know we're running to the hills so to speak and i'm astonished at how such a large portion of the populace is is none the wiser you know apart from their early adapters as you call them that you interviewed in your book uh you know it's it's mind-boggling how people just uh feel everything's you know going to continue as normal and then they laugh at you (laughs) like you're crazy you know pointing out how everything's falling apart, you know, can you speak to this, I don't know what do you call it, like Stockholm syndrome, cognitive dissonance, you know, this normalcy bias?
1: Yeah, all of those things kind of work, you know, they're they're all true. Uh, you know, I, I, I think what's uh, partly going on right now is that the coronavirus has accelerated the discontinuities that are building in the system. Just now at this point, you know, in, in the fall of 2020, you get a feeling that there are several great uh, kind of economic dams that have yet to burst that are building tensions up behind them. And uh, some of them are pretty obvious, like the fact that uh, these moratoriums on mortgage payments and and rents and the government payments to people who are out of work, and that whole dynamic is leading to a situation where – you know, all of the mechanisms of normal finance just don't work. I mean, you can't have people not paying their obligations for, for the better part of a year and, and, you know, without having tremendous problems for the creditors and for the banks. And pretty soon, you know, this stuff all thunders through the system. So we've had these moratoriums going on for most of the year, I think that the rent and mortgage mo- payment moratoriums are due to expire in December, so we we really haven't seen the the destruction that is that that this has a potential for provoking in the usa
0: and to look look then at the elections you know I, I don't really care about the daily you know i didn't even watch really <laughs> the debates w- the with the vice presidential candidates yesterday or That stuff's not really that interesting for me, but more like the general trend of where things are going. And there are a lot of colorful projections of what might happen beyond the elections, you know, whether they'll even take place. Um, You know, there's talk of the dollar collapse, the U.S. dollar losing its uh, international status, Uh, this digital dollar, you know, introduction of a cashless digital dollar system, soft civil war, martial law, a banana republic style military takeover of washington uh you know nancy pelosi and others have discussed the continuity of of a government uh so you know what do you picture whether trump or biden wins you know what do you picture beyond the elections
1: yes you've laid all that out pretty well and uh not in the sense that we know exactly what's going to happen but a lot of those things are on the menu and they may be ordered up um what do i think um well, it's unclear to me, for, for example, whether the polls that show Mr. Biden leading in the uh, presidential election, it's unclear to me whether th- they are for real or whether they are to some extent uh, a psychological operation or psyops, you know, being done by the, the national media, which to a large extent function as the publicists for the Democratic Party. So that whole thing is pretty foggy. The Democratic Party has made explicit threats to uh, start riots and obstruct the election as much as possible uh, and to litigate the election into uh, a state of uh, irresolution uh, once it's over. You know, the way it works in the U.S. is quite complicated, of course, we have this thing called the Electoral College. And the electors are are sent by each, by each state. Each state, in effect, has its own presidential election and then certifies a slate of electors to go to Washington and participate in the Electoral College formality. But there's a, a great deal of room for mischief in the state uh, certification process, and a lot of that will have to do with how they count these uh, mail-in ballots, and whether they, you know, certify fraudulent ba- ballots on a wholesale basis. I think that uh, the opposition to the Democratic Party, which I consider myself a part of now, even though I'm a registered Democrat, I think that the the opposition believes that there will be quite a bit of mischief around the mail-in votes. So, uh, you know, a lot of that depends. On how Mr. Trump reacts to that, there's also a room, there, a lot of room with Mr. Trump for creating a stiff opposition to whatever the Democrats try. You know, I, I'd say that this is uh, an unprecedented moment in American history, and it could move in a lot of ways, and many of them are not good. And the general sense is one of political paralysis and uh, political extremity. And something that may turn into something like a soft civil war, maybe even a hard civil war. One of the things that I've marvelled at is that, with all of the rioting going on, uh, mostly due to uh, uh, left-leaning groups, that the right has uh, just sort of stood by and not not responded at all in any kind of forceful way. That's been a kind of a remarkable development, and I'm not exactly sure what it means, but I'm. Inclined to think that there's a great deal of resentment on the other side of the political spectrum against all of this rioting, looting, and destruction.
0: You've called this sort of left-wing movement, you know, uh, uh, akin. You've related it to the the French Jacobins, and you know that that's also what I've. Called it. I was interviewed uh, for a friend's podcast uh, in the Netherlands like a month ago and that's uh, uh, precisely what I called it uh, as well. Huh. In your book you uh, use the term, you know, intellectual yet idiots from Nassim Taleb. So we have this kind of like woke class cancel culture identity politics show. And you know, it's. I think it's just. It's, it's. a historical cycle. We saw this sort of thing in 1789 and in France and in other places. You know, in the communist revolutions where people get cancelled. Um, you know, how long do you think this this will go on for?
1: I think these tend to be fairly short-lived hysterias. Uh, you know, based on, uh, for example, the one you raised, we both raised it actually, the Jacobin, the Jacobin phase of the French Revolution. And what happened there was that the extreme uh, radical uh, revolutionaries in the French assembly got control of the assembly or the convention. I for, I forget exactly what they called it at that moment. And they, for for about 10 months, they imposed a pretty insane program of cultural change on the country. They changed the days of the week from seven to 10. They rearranged the calendar so that it was not like the old Julian calendar. Um, They introduced new religious uh, rituals to replace uh, traditional Catholicism. And they did a lot of other things to offend just any normal person's sensibilities. And Uh, after about 10 months of this, uh, the rest of the people in France got completely sick of it and they, oh, and by the way, uh, during those 10 months, they executed about 18,000 people in the guillotine for basically for thought crimes. And after about 10 months of this, everybody else got sick of it and they executed the Jacobins. And what was really remarkable was, uh, their program was never heard of again. You know, it just vanished overnight. And I think a similar thing may happen with the wokesters in America. Um, You know, their program is so insane. Also, it's equally as insane as the Jacobins. And uh, when people have had enough of it, I think, you know, it will be violently opposed and pretty rapidly disposed of. Uh, right now, they're uh, you know I think that they're kind of taking a a soft approach to them, but it's been very destructive. You know this burning and looting in the cities and the destruction of people's livelihoods and businesses is really something. You know, places like New York and Chicago uh, and Los Angeles have been very badly damaged, you know, not to mention Portland, Minneapolis, Seattle, and other louisville, other other cities in America. So uh, I I think that uh, after a while, the uh, American woke radical Jacobins are going to be overthrown and they're not going to be able to establish their utopia.
0: And uh, another thing you point out in your book is subsequent to all of these things we've been discussing, you know, collapse uh, and so on, that historically we kind of tend to move towards some form of uh, dictatorship for a while, at least you say in your book, at least locally it might become... Uh, authoritarian for a while something you mentioned in your book uh, out of china that we know about is this social credit system which really freaks me out and i've i've interviewed some experts on this and uh, i fear this is spreading to the rest of the world you're optimistic that this type of system would fall apart Uh, i'm more pessimistic that i feel that it will gather more uh, steam and advance and become this totalitarian tool of control even in the West. Uh, as I was finishing your book late last night, I got sidetracked like two in the morning and I discovered that the my state here in Mexico, the governor, is actively working with you know funds from the Rockefeller Foundation uh, and installing this smart city and cashless society here where I am. And I was you know trying to get away from it and I just discovered that they're trying to, it's literally in their reports, you know, cashless. uh, They even mentioned pre-crime here in in, in Mexico. So, you know, what are are your thoughts on this sort of thing as well as this uh, moving to, at least for a while, some type of authoritarian regime, whether it's in the U.S. or other parts of the world?
1: Well, as you say, you know, Mexico and, of course, China are demonstrating that you can do it. Um, I I think uh, there are a couple of things that are maybe different uh, and and things that will interfere with that in the USA, because it hasn't happened here yet. One is that if we do enter a period of serious financial chaos and with it serious uh, economic collapse, I think that we're going to start to encounter problems with the electric grid and with, uh, you know, doing business in any kind of normal way. And I'm not sure that the uh, electric grid and the internet are sturdy enough to withstand th- that sort of collapse. Um, th- th- they, in some ways, embody the central problem of our time, uh, which has been described, I think, very uh, succinctly by Joseph Tainter in his book *The Collapse of, of Complex Societies*. And that central idea is the overinvestment in hypercomplexity with diminishing returns, which means that you know you layer on so many, you pile up so many layers of hypercomplexity in your society that eventually uh, they overwhelm the things that you're trying to accomplish with them. And they end up kind of destroying the systems that they were designed to serve. And uh, I think that's kind of what we're faced with in America. Uh, there, an additional problem is the fact that uh, there are a lot of firearms uh, loose in America and a lot of people who own them. And uh, and I think that there's a will to uh, use them in the face of real tyrannical danger. So I'm not so sure that they're going to be able to, that the authorities will be able to accomplish any of that. Um, you know, which leads to another question, which is simply... Uh, the current failure of authority in our society and our inability to generate any kind of a credible authority. You know, we've got two presidential candidates who are both in one way or another considered to be inadequate, inadequate leaders. And almost nobody else of any stature or gravity has stepped forward to be a potential leader. This is a vacuum of leadership. And this is what happens in these uh epic uh periodic uh cyclical emergencies that that occur in human history. And then, you know, what happens is eventually some some leader does emerge. And uh we saw that in, in France, you know, it, it took about ten years for the revolution to play out. And uh by the you know, the Jacobins were disposed of in 1794. And then you have about, you know, three or four years of, of drift. And, uh, you know, people are still fighting in the street. And at one point the French government, uh, you know, as it exists at the time, this flimsy French government calls in, an, uh, an obscure artillery officer to put down a street rebellion in Paris. And that guy is Napoleon Bonaparte. And he puts it down very decisively and everybody turns to him the, and and they, they all seem at the same time to say, he's the guy. And indeed, he was the guy, turned out to be the guy. And so, you know, you get this young man in his 20s who ends up being elevated to the top leadership as dictator of France by 1799 or so. You know, and a couple of years later, he crowns himself emperor. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty vehement reestablishment of authority. But, uh, you know, a few years earlier, nobody, nobody knew. Nobody knew of him. And the country was just drifting. And the country uh, of the United States is drifting now, and we don't really know what our future holds for leadership.
0: Another aspect of collapse you talk about is the food supply and, and its uh, collapse. And that's something I also see. And that's one of the reasons I actually, one of the many reasons I moved down uh, to Mexico for the moment, you know, I am uh, naturalized Mexican citizen. But uh, here I believe, for example, in Mexico, there's more abundant food production and ability to grow food. You know, could you tell us more about the precarious uh, food supply system?
1: Well, it's another example of overinvestment and hyper complexity. And that would be the industrial style agriculture that we pra- practice. And uh, w- one of the simple hallmarks of it is that it requires tremendous inputs of certain things, namely petroleum-based fertilizers, herbicides, and and uh, pesticides, and capital. That's something that people overlook. It takes a tremendous amount of borrowed money for these gigantic uh, farms to get their crops in the ground. And One of the things that we're facing up ahead, uh, you know, it's very hard to see because there seems to be so much money in the system. But one of the things we're facing is capital scarcity. And by that, I mean real capital. And we're in a predicament right now where so much of the stuff that passes for capital, that masquerades as capital, is really false, Uh, especially many of the financial instruments that the tradable... Financial instruments that, that represent money like stocks and bonds and and things like that I think what we're going to discover is that they really don't represent Real capital that is real savings real wealth, which only comes from truly productive activity not from just finagling paper um, uh, and digital uh, financial contracts we're going to discover that we have a capital scarcity. The farmers are not going to be able to operate at the scale that they're now operating at. And and it's going to be a tremendous uh, shock to the system. Now, what this implies is another kind of fundamental, central part of the story, which is the future is telling us very clearly that we have to downscale our activities and make them smaller and finer. And probably relocalize most of these activities, which in the sense of uh, food production means the places that will be successful are the places that have a meaningful relationship with food production. So, uh, you know, if you live in Tucson, Arizona, that's, uh, that's going to be a problem and places like it. The next question, as far as the food supply goes, is, uh, uh, you know, we've got, the far- that we've got the predicament with the farmers. But we also have the predicament with the distribution system and the the trucking system and the giant supermarket system. You know, everything is so gigantic in in the USA and scaled to the giant scale. That in itself is a a built in form of fragility. These fragilities in, in each part of the system tend to reinforce each other when they fail. So uh, there's a lot of room for failure in the food actually reaching the population finally, and uh, I suppose that we're we're in danger of uh, encountering food scarcities in uh, you know 2021 and, and beyond. We'll have to see how that works out.
0: In, in these historical cycles, you know, so far we've discussed uh, economic problems, financial collapse, social uh, unrest, and and upheaval uh, problems with energy. And it seems eventually we get to you know military conflict. and this is a recurring question and theme I, I ask most of my guests. and in your book, uh, I think you briefly mentioned that your optimistic humanity will continue, but you rightly don't this dis- uh, discount. The prospect of a nuclear war. Uh, indeed, the Thucydides trap is alive and well with uh, China. Uh, and let's not forget the film Mad Max was set in the year 2021. You know, what are your thoughts? Oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> what are your thoughts on uh, military conflict going forward?
1: Well, uh, I think it's a possibility and it's not something that I like to dwell on. And it really depends on you know, the mutual behavior of the major powers in the world and namely China and the USA right now. Um, I, I think the Europeans are going to be perhaps too preoccupied with, uh, with their financial problems. Uh, as for Russia, uh, my sense about Russia is that, uh, all things considered, it would prefer to stay out of any kind of conflict. You know, they've, they've had enough war for, for a while. And, uh, you know, they're still in the process of trying to consolidate some kind of a working country. So I think that they're liable to stay on the sidelines. It kind of, you know, comes down to what's going to happen between China and the USA. We've both been acting provocatively. You know, it's something that it's it's a scary prospect. So, yeah
0: perhaps now we could look at, I guess, some solutions or or ways forward of of what you've mentioned This idea of downsizing. And and I I agree with, I intuitively, you know, before reading your book, I I was already doing kind of what uh, you were talking about, which is adapting to this collapse or transition and trying to uh, mitigating it because, I mean, the problem's too big. And it's like, all you can do is just kind of figure out uh, how to make your own way amongst uh, all these problems and you know, one of the reasons I I, I left the, the US was the cost of living. And I just, it, it boggles my mind. Uh, you can really like add things up, you know, like, for example, in Mexico, I pay five bucks a month for my cell phone, you know, Americans pay like 50 bucks huh. a month, you know, my, my water bills like five bucks a month, you know, my electricity bills five bucks a month. And, you know, someone I know was recently looking at renting a home for, you know, two, three thousand dollars, uh, a month in the U.S. and I, I just did a brief calculation. You know, I've I've lived in Mexico. You can rent a place for 300 bucks in Croatia, where I've lived. You can rent uh, for 300 dollars a nice apartment in Kazakhstan, where I've lived, is the same three about 300 bucks. And so, and I've also found that people in other parts of the world tend to live with little to no debt and they have a high rate of savings. You know, d- despite their lower uh, income, but I still find that allows them to live better with less stress. And in the US, especially, and perhaps in Europe as well, there's a high cost. Sure, you make more money, but the, the cost of living is really high. And if you're not careful, you know, you, you most people don't have savings and they have a lot of debt and it creates a lot of stress. So maybe you can sp- speak a, a little bit about this. Well,
1: um, as far as the high cost of living goes, I, I tend to think that that's simply another perversity that's been introduced into the system by the shenanigans of the central bankers. And, uh, you know, they, they've been destroying features of the money system pretty systematically for the last, well, for decades. But in particular, they're destroying things like, uh, uh, price discovery. They're destroying, uh, uh the functions of markets, that's thundering through the system and creating uh other perversities down the line including you know the high cost of uh, houses mortgages um rentals so uh you know i i think it really amounts to that is that uh, uh our system has been so interfered with and manipulated that it's just been turned and it's just been deformed terribly ultimately where we're headed is to uh uh, a less complex society, perhaps uh, smaller countries. Perhaps the United States will uh, become several countries. I, I think that the the level of life has yet to be determined whether we're going to, you know, end up in something that's like the late eight, late 19th century, or if we don't stop there. You know, if we, I mean, uh, when the Romans left Britain. Uh, things got primitive very, very quickly and stayed that way for a long time. So there's a possibility that we could go medieval and, uh, that sounds like a gag, but it's not really, it, you know, it could really happen. Uh, we could, we could lose a lot of, of everything of, of comfort, convenience, knowledge about how to do things, technology, you know, all that stuff. When the Romans left Britain, the Britons stopped making ceramic prop, uh, pot, uh, pottery. And they stopped bathing in the in the Roman baths and eventually they broke down. And, uh, you know, so a lot of our stuff could break down and, and really kind of remains to be seen how far we're going to fall down. I, uh, you know, I think that uh, eventually the action is going to be moving to the localities and whether or not each locality can maintain some kind of political, social and economic coherence. And it won't matter so much what you know what the vestigial national government may do or say or be, and and uh, you know any more than it mattered in Britain of the uh, the 1100s uh, what, what went on in Rome. Uh, I think we're heading in that way, and I wrote four novels on that theme under the rubric of world made by hand. So there were the four of these stories, and they depicted what life would be like after an economic collapse, and it was kind of a, a mashup of, of people trying new social forms. There were people who were behaving uh, like feudal lords, even though they didn't call themselves that. But they had assembled uh, large parcels of property and aggregated a number of people to live on them and to serve to serve them and and create an armature for daily life that allowed people to live a coherent life. So there was that. and and then there were more, you know authoritarian kinds of religious uh, excuse me, religious tyrannies. and you know we'll see what kind of a mashup of that there is and how much of uh, you know, tradition, traditional American democratic republicanism survives.
0: Yeah. And this is something that has repeated throughout history where we've seen these advanced civilizations disappear from the Americas, uh, all the way out to Asia, um, I think in your book, you've alluded to, uh, th- just some practical things that people can do going forward. I suppose, you know, relying on yeah. hard assets, you know, uh, having small garden producing uh, your own food, or at least supplementing your your food purchases, uh, possessing precious metals, land, uh, investing, I guess, uh, switching your fiat money that's, that's worthless and buying, you know, tools that you will need uh, on the road ahead. You know, what are some yeah. practical tips for the ways forward?
1: Well, I think one of the most important ones is assembling some kind of a community of people around you that you can rely on and who can rely on you and forming more or less kind of individual social contracts with them, uh, formal or informal about, you know, moving forward. This really hasn't happened much in the USA because life is so atomized by, uh, you know, the whole computer internet scene and the gigantism of employment in giant corporations and, and all the things that take people out of their daily community life and and erode the value of it and make parts of it disappear. But we're going to be coming back to that fast. And I, I think another key feature of what we're facing is that this is not going to be a, a top-down organized uh, thing, the the way this plays out. You know this is going to this is going to play out emergently you know, we'll discover that societies and economies are emergent organisms that, uh, self-organize based on, on the conditions that reality presents. So it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily going to be any group of, you know, wise men or some council of MIT graduates who are going to tell us, uh, exactly what to do. Uh, circumstances have mandates of their own and, uh, uh, they will instruct us where this thing is going and what the intelligent response to it is. You know, one, one, one intelligent response, for example, would be don't bother going to college. You know, it's become a stupid racket. And, uh, you know, most of what is presumed to be taught there is garbage uh, useless propaganda and the idea that you'd have to pay $70,000 to do it is just absurd. So, you know, you're much better off learning a few practical, uh, trades than, than doing that. Uh, you know, those are the, some of the kinds of things that we can do Where some of the, some of these problems are extremely daunting. Like the fact that so many people live in American suburbia and how do you deconstruct that in a way that, uh, you know, turns it into a viable human habitat. We don't know. My guess is that uh, it it won't really, uh, we won't succeed at doing that. It'll eventually just become either slums, ruins, or salvage. But there is a great deal of salvage there. You know, there are a lot of building materials in suburbia that we aren't going to be making anymore, and we're going to have to reuse a lot of the things that are there. Um, the big cities are going to be in a lot of trouble because they're overscaled. They're already failing now, and that failure has been accelerated by the coronavirus. You see that especially in New York City, which is losing, you know, all of its, uh, its whole business model is falling apart. You know, the skyscraper office paradigm and and the luxury shopping paradigm and uh, the luxury rental paradigm, you know, all these things are failing at the same time. And people are fleeing, especially taxpayers. And even in the in the high tide of financialization, New York City could barely maintain its subway system. So imagine what will happen now to the subway system with uh, four hundred thousand of the uh, uh, you know best middle class taxpayers fleeing the city for other places. So these are the kinds of, Uh, things that we face, it suggests a lot of demographic movements and people shifting from one place to another. I happen to think that the successful places will be the small towns and uh, the small cities, I tend to think that the successful places will be the smaller towns and smaller cities that have suffered the worst disinvestment over the last 50 years. And and the successful places will especially be the ones that have some meaningful relationship with farming and farming at a scale that makes sense. So, uh, you know, I think that's how it's going to be playing out.
0: And what you mentioned about universities, you know, totally spot on. Someone myself who's taught at university, I would totally agree that it's not... At this moment in time, worth it uh, if you can become successful. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know we could go on. You've made so many accurate forecasts. I mean, in your latest book that was published, I think in in March, in the spring of this year, you even we had exactly the wrong time. <laughs> yeah,
1: it, just as the all the bookstores were shutting down, the few that remain.
0: Yeah, well, in the book, you also, I mean, um, among all of the stuff we've talked about, you even discussed the collapse of tourism and the aviation industry which you know okay thanks to to, to corona that's gone for, i think for, yeah. forever and you know again that came true uh, in spades this prediction so uh, people should you know go you have a huge backlog of the books and, and the blogs and the podcasts and people should really dive into that uh, is there any are there is there anything that i didn't bring up that you think is important or any final thoughts for us
1: well, just that you know, it's not the end of the world. One of the purpose of the world made by hand novels was to give uh, the public a sense that you know life continues, the human, the human project will go on, we will be able to find joy in everyday life and purpose, uh, but the terms of it are going to change somewhat. And uh, you know, I think that we can handle that. The human race is highly adaptable, and uh, you know, we need to uh, find our own purpose and be resolute, and be brave, and stop being crybabies about everything, and carry on, especially the men.
0: Yes, uh, indeed. We need uh, resilience and, and grit, uh, and standing up uh, for certain things. So people can find all your material at kunstler.com. That's K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R.com. I'll leave a link. Is there any other website or, or project that we should know about?
1: not really and you know most of my books and articles are on that and uh you know i'm just carrying on I, I, i'm i'm trying to keep my life uh you know uncomplex
0: all right and so again i i highly recommend uh the new book that came out in, in march as well as the the previous ones i'm going to go back and dive into some of those uh you you uh he has the counselor cast podcast and the two blogs uh, a week i believe and people can support you on patreon so i hope people check that out and you know you have some impressive clairvoyant uh, abilities so if you if people want to know <laughs> the road ahead you know bookmark and thanks for being with us today
1: it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, you you are among the
0: most intelligent interviewers i've encountered i hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast and interview I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission, and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin, or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.